do this. I actually uh, did a podcast earlier this week and I deleted it. It just was half-assed. Wasn't feeling it. And I want to just keep it real. I don't want to just be doing this just to fill a quota of once a week or whatever. Better if I just take a few weeks off if, if I'm feeling like that. But I have a, a few thoughts, a few things to say. We'll see. Maybe I'll keep this one. I went back to the track this week. Finally was back. I popped my hamstring about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, March. I can still feel it. It's a little weak, but no pain. I don't think I re-injured it. I've been doing uh, 400 meters at a time, sub two minutes. That's not very fast. It's like an eight-minute mile, but only a quarter mile. And I pushed it a little today. It's my second day at the track. And I did a 136, which is like a six-minute, six-and-a-half-minute mile pace, basically for 400 meters. So again, I wasn't really cooking, but you know, look, I'm 51, about 5'10", 188. If I were in good, really, really good shape, be like, I'd be about 175. That's how much I was when I was trying to run the five minute mile a couple of years ago. I wasn't, upon reflection, I think five minute mile was truly insane, but maybe six, I can still do eventually. But anyway, I was about 175 then, and that is in like very good shape for me about 188 now. So I think it'll get easier if I drop a few pounds. I think if I were to be like a professional boxer, I'd have to be at like 170, 165 would be like my fighting weight. But but yeah, 188, I can make it easier on myself if I'm trying to go for speed. But I'm not yet. I'm just, I'm just getting warmed up, getting the hamstring back. We'll see. It's funny because I went to the track and I had my phone, but I put it in the locker that's there. And I thought, should I film the track? It's just me. Sometimes I, I run with uh, friends. Should I film the track? So I put it on the podcast or something. Not really film myself running. That's too much of a pain in the ass. Maybe a friend of mine could film something. But then I was like, what the hell am I even thinking? This is preposterous. This is, uh... well, it's not preposterous, but the... it's like social media has basically, you know, 20 years ago in the aughts, maybe in the late 90s, there was that MTV reality show. And then there were a bunch of reality shows. We had a president because of a reality show. And, you know, the Kardashians is gigantic. But now with social media and everybody's on social media, everybody's kind of living this reality show. I and mean, what is your Instagram or your Twitter feed? Twitter's more about ideas. I don't have Instagram, but, you know, I would assume Instagram's kind of a reality show. You're sort of a little reality show. You got a little video of yourself, you got some snapshots, you get the, the life behind the scenes of the person who does the work. Sometimes there is no work. It's just a reality show of just a person. Just This is the person you know, and here's their reality show. But they don't do anything. They work for a bank or something like that. They don't do anything that is relevant to the reality show. And you have a podcast, and you have a website, and you're like, well, maybe I'll add some reality show. I don't know. It just it, it, It's kind of absurd. Like, I'm just some fucking dude. I'm just 51-year-old dude with essentially my wife. You know, we're not married, but essentially, and my kid and my dog. Maybe it's because I live in Portugal. I could do a reality show because it's a uh, it's a little more interesting than, at least if since you're up, my audience is mostly in the U.S. Anyway, I'm getting back into that and uh, feels pretty good to do it. I really didn't feel like doing it today, but it was nice. I took my shirt off, got some sun. Sun is big. It's good to get, and don't always remember to get it when you're in the house. So going to the track, it's like going to the beach. It's making a joke, a joke to myself. I didn't even tell anyone this joke, but I'm going to tell it to you on the. Uh, podcast when i was when i was rolling back in the day uh, against the spread when i was on a good run i used to joke that it wasn't me picking the games it was the lord picking the games through me i was just the vehicle 
for these picks. So I was just open mind, lightning bolt of truth comes in, I make the pick, pick covers. It's just the Lord covering the spread. It's not me. And so I started thinking, you know, it's not me, right? It's not my ideas. These aren't my ideas. These are just, I'm just a vehicle, right? The idea comes in your head, express it, put it on paper, just the vehicle. So who cares about my background life? Who cares about the, uh, the human interest story? You know, the Olympics or the, or the baseball game or the Super Bowl. You know, they want all the human interest story. Who are these players? Oh, look at this guy. He went to an orphanage and helped these people or whatever. You know, there's always that whole thing. And it's the same thing on social media. We're all trying to look good and, and virtue signal this and, and post that. And so, you know, we're all curating and, and everybody does it. I mean, everybody posts stuff that makes them look like they want to look. You know, I'll give you an example. Like if someone took a really bad photo of me and put it up, <laughs> would it be, I wouldn't be happy about it. I certainly wouldn't be retweeting it if I saw it. But someone took a great photo of me and said, hey, here I am with lists, you know, here. And it's a great photo of me. Yeah, I'd retweet that. No problem. Of course. So we're all sort of guilty of it. So I don't know. I don't know how much reality show I should be doing. It's just something that occurred to me. I've thought about stuff because of like the stuff I do. I fast, you know, I could do like a video YouTube series of fasting. There's like a million people doing that. And I've watched them, you know, when I was going to fast, I watched these total, total dimwits, you know, going through it. But, you know, I watched it. It was watchable. It was interesting, you know, how they're doing on day three, day four, day five. I thought about it. It seemed a little cliche. I had this other idea because I get in this argument with Heather all the time that uh, she, she says poor people can't eat healthy. And I said, poor people can eat healthy, but they just don't have good information. So they're eating the shit, you know, that they, they don't realize what's healthy. Most people, not just poor people don't have good information about health. And she said, no, there's nothing they can afford in their neighborhood. So we go back and forth. So I said, I'm going to eat uh, healthy for a month on five, five bucks a day, five euros a day. And Portugal is a little cheaper than the U.S. It's not cheaper. Lisbon's not cheaper than, you know, a medium-sized or small city in the U.S. It's cheaper than obviously like L.A. or New York. So I was thinking about doing, I'll eat five bucks a day for a month. Well, it's easy if you fast twice a week, right? That, that saves you 10 bucks. You could apply it to the other days. I would eat some sardines. They're pretty cheap. Some uh, hard-boiled eggs, a lot of hard-boiled eggs. You know, I could figure it out. But it just seemed like something to do. Five bucks a day, super healthy. Probably lose a bunch of weight especially about fasting twice a week. But I thought about stuff like that. I don't know. You know, this is early iteration of what I'm doing. You know, maybe I'll just walk the earth and you'll never hear from me again. I mean, maybe this week, next week, who knows? You know, I mean, I, maybe I do need to take six months and just think about stuff or maybe not. I think I'm spending too much time on Twitter though. I, I really am hooked on Twitter because there's a lot going on and it's kind of, kind of interesting to me. Big thing that happened today, and this is great news, but we'll see. The Bureau of Disinformation just got canned and that kooky Nina Jankowicz just uh, resigned. So that's great. I think that the ridicule that some of you and me and people with much bigger followings than I have relentlessly poured onto this horrendous violation of the First Amendment just a horrible unconstitutional thing that they were even they were even considering that is abominable that they're even considering that but it's beyond the pale in the United States of America to have a bureau of disinformation but they just scrapped that and that was big so that died after 22 days Glenn Greenwald pointed out same amount of time that CNN plus lived was 22 days 
The other thing that's about to die, not imminently, but I think it's going to die, is ESG. And I forget what that is exactly. It's an environmental score that you get, an environmental tally. And like the big investment firms like BlackRock are using it to decide what to invest in. It matters in terms of like what all these like passive funds go into, I'm pretty sure. So there's a lot of pressure on these companies to be ESG compliant, whatever that means, you know, I guess environmentally friendly and uh, compliant with whatever they want. And Elon Musk, you know, he's starting to get attacked a bit because he's saying some based things that uh, are not acceptable to the rest of the ruling class. And so they just said Tesla's not in the top 10 or something like that for ESG. I'm going to look at his actual tweet so I don't get it wrong. Exxon Mobil. He just tweeted that Exxon Mobil is rated top 10 best in the world for environment, social. That's what it is, ESG. Environment, social, and governance by the S&P 500, while Tesla did not make the list. So Exxon is in the top 10. Tesla is not. Elon Musk said ESG is a scam. It's been weaponized by phony social justice warriors. And obviously that's true. And it's not just because Elon Musk said it or because Tesla, which ostensibly is a you know, green company, which I don't really, I don't really know. I mean, how much, you know, the lithium batteries and the, and where are they getting electricity or they're getting it from renewable sources, but whatever. Tesla is obviously greener than Exxon. And this is just obviously a scam to control companies, to make people compliant. I mean, if they say you need to do these five things and that's going to cost you a ton of money in passive investments in your stock and your stock's going to drop, your compensation's going to drop, that kind of thing is always going to be gamed, right? Whenever you have a virtue metric that's out there, it's going to be gamed because instead of you know having a mission, and I don't know if Elon's genuine or not, I don't know the guy, but assuming his mission is to have vehicles that don't produce emissions and take us to Mars or whatever his mission is, solar panels, whatever. The mission is the thing that has to guide a company, not compliance with the metric. As soon as there's a metric, then people game the metric. It's always been the case, you know, in the wire, they're talking about juking the stats and you see it, you know, police will give more tickets the last couple of days. Say, hey, look, we're, we're getting more uh, tickets or we're getting more uh, speeding tickets or we're, you know, they get their quotas up. When you start to make the measure, when you substitute the measure for the goal itself, then the measure becomes the goal. And so then being in the good, the good graces of the ESG board uh, becomes the measure, not actually doing things that are positive for the environment and get into whether the extent to which the environmental stuff is an imminent emergency or whether it's, you know, more of just sort of like, Hey, let's not pollute and let's keep an eye on this, but it's not really an imminent disaster. And there's different views on that. I'm more of now that they told me to fear COVID. Now they told me to fear ISIS. Now they told me to fear, fear all these invisible, terrifying things that turned out not really to be true. I'm pretty skeptical about the urgency of climate change. Uh, I'm very much against pollution. I love nature. I love trees. I love animals. You know, my daughter and I, we love all the animals. We love the insects. We'll save a bee from a swimming pool. I had video of that. Put that in the links. Saved a bee's life. You know, we do that. We care about the bee. We get a moth in the house. I try to catch it in my hand, close my hand, throw it out the window. We don't kill it. I will kill ants. I don't like to kill them, but I will kill them. I will kill flies. Uh, I try to let them out the window and I'll definitely kill mosquitoes. That's the mosquito is the one thing that uh, I'm, I'm less uh, sympathetic to because it's just such a pest. So I do care about the environment quite a bit. I'm just not sure that the people telling me that I should not eat meat or that I should travel less or that whatever 
God knows what they're going to cook up in the next five years, are doing that because it's true. I think they're more likely doing that because they feel it's a big lever they can use. And it, it's kind of a shame because if it is true, um, they're really crying wolf a lot. And you're going to have people like me who might have taken it more seriously, but I can't uh, see them as legitimate. And all the scientists they say that agree with it, I've, I've read dissenting scientists who don't agree. And I see now with COVID the way that dissent is crushed. Um, and so the, now the, the whole climate thing is called into question and pretty much everything is called into question. Every I talked about the uh, colonoscopy last week and just like, wait, am I sure that's a, a thing? You know, what does cancer really come from? You know, what is, you know, we know that heart disease doesn't come from cholesterol and statins don't treat heart disease. And so, you know, you go down the rabbit hole. I mean, what is true? And so, you know, you start to look at things like, and again, if climate change is the uh, imminent disaster that they, they purport it to be, it's too bad because you're losing a lot of people. You can't keep lying to people for their own good and, and get away with it and have people still believe you the next time. So it's on them, not on me. But hopefully, I'm, I'm pretty sure the ESG thing is total bullshit. And Elon Musk just tweeted it and people are aware of it. And the institutions we have are so low in their credibility right now. I mean, they're just, nobody trusts anything. So I'm going to say rest in peace. No, rotten hell. Bureau of Disinformation, rotten hell and rotten hell, hopefully ESG pretty soon. Hopefully the WHO treaty, that's the supranational board that governments are all supposed to report to for the next pandemic. Hopefully that's the next, you know, that Reaper meme where the Reaper comes and door after door, there's blood on the door. Well, the first one's the uh, CNN plus, and then it's the Bureau of Disinformation. And hopefully it's ESG. And hopefully then that WHO treaty is, uh, is destroyed. I feel like not enough people appreciate that the band of the who wrote a song called won't get fooled again. One of their biggest hits. And then the who after botching the pandemic completely wants to fool us again. They want us to go with them again. And the whole, the song by the who was won't get fooled again. And there's a lyric in there that says, I move myself and my family aside. If we happen to be left half alive, I'll get all my papers and smile at the sky. Oh, I know the hypnotized never lied could be written for today. And uh, it's the who, and you got the who. It would be kind of like if there was a, a, a health organization or a vaccine organization called 1984, or they renamed uh, the World Economic Forum Brave New World Forum or something. It, it's too on the nose. Like literally the who, who, who have the song won't get fooled again. And that's the acronym for the world health organization that is literally trying to fool you again with the same bullshit with lot you know they were the one of the drivers of the lockdowns and it's bill gates it's epstein guy donates massive amounts to the who and he's their biggest backer and has a huge amount of influence on them the guy the head of it tedros just congratulated gates and said how great his book was i mean this is just i hope people appreciate the irony of the who and the who and i would rather have geriatric Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey uh, running our health policy than these, these psychopaths at the actual uh, World Health Organization. All right, a couple other things. I don't think this would be a long one, but I've been thinking about and trying to write something that, that really brings this home. I have a story called The Simulator that's kind of about this, but it's the concept of utilitarianism. And utilitarianism was the philosophy of John Stuart Mill and the idea was the highest moral imperative was the greatest good for the greatest number. So you want to do whatever it is that results in the greatest good for the greatest number. And he starts to define good as utility, happiness. You know, there's 
I guess you could say that like, if I have a million dollars and I get a hundred million dollars, I'll have more money more, but you know, my utility won't go up that much because I'm already okay with a million dollars. But if I have no money and I get a million dollars, that might raise my utility curve more steeply. And you'd consider things like that for how to apportion money. I don't remember the uh, exact examples we used. I, I think I studied this in law in, uh, in college, but I, I feel like the greatest good for the greatest number, there's nothing wrong with that as sort of a general concept, but this is sort of, and I, I think this is the framework that most of our um, governments, politicians, think tanks, media, um, certainly the laptop class. This is what they use, I think, internally. It's optimization. The MBAs, let's optimize. So, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, I, I kind of feel this is the, the flaw in it, is that when we decide, okay, let's do this, let's maximize for the greatest good for the greatest number, and we start saying, well, if one person has to die, if these 10 people live, that's a good call, or if 100 people have to die because 1,000 live, and then we start saying things like, well, you know, if my, you know, I mean, if, if, if I've got the best policy and my opponent is a psychopath who has a bad policy, well, then me getting elected could save millions and him getting elected could kill millions. Therefore, if I have to cheat to get elected, that's okay. Or if I have to kill one person to get elected, that would be okay because I killed one, but it saved millions. And you see that the, you can go down a road with this kind of reasoning. The end justifies the mean because it's for the greater good. And you go down a very horrible road where, you know, and, and of course, humans are not um, reliable for two reasons. One is because we over, you know, I think I'm the candidate that's going to save a million lives. I, I may be lying or I may just like actually have drunk the Kool-Aid after a while, convince myself how important it is for me to win, even though really the real reason is my personal ambition. I may just misascribe it to, you know, the saving the world. I may be a megalomaniac. First thing, humans aren't good judges because they're very biased of what is the greatest good for the greatest number. They're going to choose a lot of self-serving things and they're going to minimize the damage. They're going to say, well, yes, yeah, so what if we cheated? It's not a big deal. This guy was so bad who we had to go against. I had to get in. We're going to minimize the damage and we're going to accentuate the good. And so this is obviously very dangerous for people to be thinking this way. And, and you see people do it all the time. Now, the second problem is that even if you were earnest about it, even if you weren't you know, biased and overrating your own good and underrating the, the bad, the, the, overrating the end of, of what you wanted and underrating the means of getting there, even if you, if you were perfect at rating it, I mean, you're only going to get the, uh, the first order effects, maybe a couple second order effects. So say I cheat because I want to win an election and my winning the election is so important that it's worth it, but then the election process now is suspect and now we can't have a peaceful transfer of power. So the next time uh, there's supposed to be election, nobody believes it and there's a civil war and 20 million people die. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that we know that's going to happen. I'm just saying that there are second order effects from doing things like cheating or killing a person in order to get ahead that you can't just simply measure and like, okay, well, I just did this. And here's another one. So let's say a situation like this where you've got to kill one innocent person. He's Putin's best friend or something, and that'll stop him from nuking the world. So you just kill this guy. He's innocent. He's Putin's best friend. You kill him or you threaten to kill him or you start torturing him and Putin won't launch the nukes and you save a million people. So you start doing this. Of course, I'm going to do it. I'm a poor guy, but too bad. It's a million people, billion people, whatever. And so you do this horrible thing and then it turns out, ah, oh, the person was lying to you. That person doesn't know Putin. You just tortured somebody. So you just got manipulated into torturing somebody. You say, no, 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 that, that hypothetical doesn't work. You told me this would happen in the hypothetical. I wouldn't do it if it would maybe happen. You told me it was going to happen. And I'll tell you, 
Well, you don't really know. He might push the nuke anyway. You might have tortured someone for no reason. The, the problem with these hypotheticals is you don't know the future. So the hypothetical I said, where if you do this horrible thing, you'll prevent a worse thing. Yeah, in the hypothetical, I tricked you because I, I didn't say maybe. I said it, it was the case. But the whole point is when you're talking about the future, there is no, it is the case. You just know it's likely to be the case. And so just a better policy is you just don't torture people ever. You don't kill innocent people. You don't do it. And so a better framework than good for the greatest number, which has two flaws. One, that it can be um, subject to incredible bias for people who justify what they want to do. And two, even if it weren't subject to bias, you just can't do the math. And forget about the second order effects. I didn't even get into third, fourth, fifth order effects, you know, the cheating or there could be massive implications for this little thing that you did and you just really don't know. And the results are never all in, right? I mean, results, you know, the butterfly effect in a complex system, a little change that doesn't seem to be a big deal could be, have a massive effect that's negative. It's just, we just don't have the math to do it. The hubris you need to think you can calculate those permutations beyond a very narrow time frame. It's impo- I mean, just imagine, okay, get all the computers in the world, the smartest people in the world and have them model an NFL season. And you tell me you're going to bet your life on which two teams, the model says he's in the Super Bowl, that those teams will be there in the Super Bowl, or you'll bet, you know, all your money because you've got plus EV on that. No, you won't. Why? Because football is a complex system. And no matter how much computer power goes into these predictions, they don't know. And there's randomness and the, there's many orders of effects that go from before the season to the end of the season. You just don't know. And football is not as complicated as, you know, world affairs, economies, countries. So it's just in a complex system. We just don't have the skills to do utilitarianism properly. Put differently, utilitarianism fails by its own measure. It does not, to try to create the greatest good for the greatest number, will almost certainly not create the greatest good for the greatest number. It may well create the greatest misery for the greatest number. Probably not the greatest misery. You probably have to do that intentionally, but quite a bit of misery. Unintended consequences, unintended misery. So what's a better way to go about this, right? We, we want the greatest good for the greatest number, but trying to get the greatest good for the greatest number is not the way to do it. So the way in which governments think, oh, let's just mandate this because it'll save that. Let's just trample on your rights about your bodily autonomy because we want this result. That is exactly the bankrupt utilitarian thinking that got us into trouble. Oh, let's just lie about our opponents. Let's just lie about what somebody said on Twitter because he's on the political team that I disagree with. So even though I know it's not true, I'm smearing this person, smearing his character. It's okay because the end is justified. You know, he's a bad person. So there's nothing I can really say that's not at least directionally true about this person. So I can make up whatever I want. And then it turns out that you are the one that was duped, that you were the one complying with some pharmaceutical company, like some kind of zombie that was following his marching orders. Why the fuck? You're not even getting paid for this shit. You're the one advocating for war in Ukraine. You have no fucking idea about Ukraine or anything. And you're going along and you're smearing people who are against it. You're smearing people who just don't want the vaccine. And you've, probably forgotten this, but that you justified in your mind, like this attack on somebody's character. This is the, the result you get from this utilitarian mindset that the, that the means is justified by the end. And it's, and it's, it's horrible. And it, it leads to bad results, but it also just leads to people of, of low character who have no principles. And so you, the alternative 
is principles, right? The Kantian act only on that maxim. You would will to be a universal law. Do only those things you think everybody should do in the situation. Every person is an end in himself. That's another uh, part of the categorical imperative. So Kant wouldn't say, oh, someone could go kill your kid to save 10 kids. No, that's fucking absolutely not okay. Absolutely that's not okay. Oh, well, I guess they're saving 10. So I guess I'll have to give mine up. No fucking way. No way. Figure out another solution, man. It's, it's not going to fly. So this kind of thinking is a scourge. We, everybody's an enemy of self. We don't sacrifice a person for another person. So when you have a complex system, the rules are what really matter. The axioms, the basis. And then you let nature take its course, right? You have market rules and good rules. Maybe some antitrust is okay. And you have contract law. And you let the thing go and maybe you end up with incredible innovation. Maybe if you end up with a constitution where, you know, the government cannot abridge your speech, cannot, cannot seize your person or your property without due process of law, cannot uh, have an unreasonable search and seizure of your property. These kind of protections are good axioms on which a society can be built and great things can happen. But if we start violating those axioms, we start messing with it for short-term utilitarian goals we're fucked. We're going to have, you know, that's what, that's what banana republics are. That's what totalitarian states are. They're basically systems with bad axioms. And so it's just a utilitarian power grab. Whoever justifies the greatest good for the greatest number with the most force wins. It ends up being might makes right because whoever has the most might will just take over the, the message, which is that whatever we want is for the greater good. And that's what they did with COVID. You know, you have to inject for the greater good. You have to lock down for the greater good. You know, they didn't do a serious cost benefit analysis. They didn't care whether they violated your rights and the principles of the constitution. They just had the power. So they did it. And you know what? They didn't really have the power because the constitution says it's illegal and the courts would enforce that. But too many nutless monkeys went along with it. You know, I went along with it for nine months. So, you know, I'm guilty too. All right. So, Oh, one, one other note, which will just annoy people, but you know, if you're talking about second, third, fourth, fifth order effects, there's million order effects, millionth order effects, right? And it depends how what the unit of time is for each effect. And you know, you have that so, that whole quantum Schrodinger's cat, where is it alive, is it dead? And I guess like it's both alive and dead, depending on which branch of the multiverse it ends up in, and how many multiverses are there. And we could say, well, every Planck time, which is like the smallest possible unit of time. And at the subatomic level, every atom is doing every possible thing it could possibly do in the entire universe. And just the number of atoms in the universe in one instant is 10 to the 80. 10 to the 80 factorial would be the permutations of the ways in which they could be arranged. But then you're talking about every Planck time, it gets rearranged and goes into different permutations. And each one is a different multiverse. Now you're getting to the point where those numbers I, you know, that you had no interest in start to become interesting, right? Exponentiation, exponential growth, that works for viral spread. That works for population modeling, but regular exponentiation is probably not going to work for this quantum multiverse explosion of permutations and second, third, fourth Google order effects. So we need some titration, some pentation, some hexation. So anyway, that's just maybe there's a, uh, an actual use for that stuff. You see these, these, uh, large number of functions are, are useless. There's nothing in the physical universe that can uh, correlate to them, but that might, that might be one. Although even that crazy scenario I described with Planck at each Planck time multiverses branching out into every permutation, I'm pretty sure that's still not shit compared to like Graham's number and Graham's number is not shit compared to tree three. So there is, that is uh, 
the numbers are bigger than even what we can describe. But maybe there is a, a use for these things if, if you get deep, small enough and fast enough for when these branches of these multiverses branch off at like, you know, uh, an insane speed. All right, a couple other uh, notes, uh, different shifting gears. Okay, the market is getting destroyed. Bitcoin has gone down quite a bit. I'm not sweating Bitcoin. The fundamentals are very good. Lightning Network is being adopted. Um, that's going to be the payment rail where you can buy coffees. The base layer is putting out its block every 10 minutes. It's been down quite a bit, but so have stocks. Fed is not, I don't think it's really tightening, but it's not printing or it's tightening a little bit. They raised rates a teeny bit. And even that little bit is crushing all the liquidity in the system because everybody's levered. Everybody's got debt. Uh, you raise rates just a little bit and they've got to sell to raise cash. And so, you know, a lot of the uh, big players in the Bitcoin space aren't that knowledgeable. They're not um, hardcore hodlers. They're just, they see it as a speculative asset. And so when liquidity is scarce, they sell to get the liquidity, but don't sweat that. I'm not, I don't know where the bottom is. It could go down more. I, I'm not really the best market timer. What's interesting is that, you know, the rest of the market is, is getting destroyed. My thesis is still that they'll reach a pain point where they're going to have to print and we're going to have a, an insane run up before the thing breaks. That'll be the last sort of breaking piece, but I don't know when there is. And of course I could be wrong about that, but that's just my take on, on the market. One thing though that, that occurred to me, and I, I want to write like a comprehensive deep dive into the fiat monetary system. And I would probably have already done that, but I don't really understand it. I listen to a lot of people on FinTwit and I just don't know what the fuck they're saying. I don't really get what they're saying with the Euro dollar and some of the stuff. There's this one guy, I want to say his name is Dan Snyder, something. I mean, I, I probably got that wrong. But I've heard him a few times. Everyone says he's this genius, but I just don't know what the hell he's talking about. Like, I just, I want to do the dive, grasp it, and then translate it to you, to regular people. Something that I wish I had for myself. And I've read a lot of stuff. Some of it I learned a little here and there. But one thing I did learn, I heard this and I thought about it. It just kind of hit me like a light bulb went on, is that your money that's in a bank account, in a fiat bank account, euros or dollars in a bank, is not your money. What it is, and this is how it's accounted for you know, in accounting, is it's a liability for the bank. The bank has a $20,000 liability, which is your bank account. They have this liability, this sort of debt to you, this, this bank account. And you can draw on that and use it. But if that bank were to fail, obviously you wouldn't, it's not your money. Or if you know, you're like the truckers and you did something that was non-compliant, they may say, you know, that's not your money. Or if you're like Russia, you're a bad actor and they seize your funds, it's not your money. So your funds exist not only based on the survival of the bank, but also based on the whims of the bank. And so what that is, is counterparty risk, right? We look at money when you have 20 bucks in your hand or gold coin in your hand, like, oh, I've got some money, right? I've got money now, I've got money in the bank, it's just digital. And it's my money, just the same as if I had cash. But there's actually counterparty risk. You say, well, the bank can't fail. The bank fails, the whole system's down, whole thing. Well, yeah, that's true. And the bank's FDIC insured for a certain amount of money probably too. But then, you know, the thing about insurance is like, oh, I'm going to buy some hurricane insurance in Miami. Or I don't know if you can even buy it anymore, but okay. Bought the insurance. I'm good. You know, if something happens in my house, I'll get reimbursed. Well, you know, it just turns out that that hurricane wiped out everybody's house and the insurance companies wiped out. This happened in 2008 with the credit default swaps, right? The, the AAA bonds, they were insured with these credit default swaps and the bonds went bad and okay, come pay. But the, the insurer was bust. 
And that's why the government had to step in. You know, so you've got you got this counterparty risk that's real, you know, that's that's actually real and also the risk that they, you know, don't let you have it. But forget about the, you know, the possibility of banks collapsing and all that. Just set that aside for a second and just consider that don't have the money. It's just a it's just an IOU. It's a liability on the bank sheet. They owe you this money. It's a liability. That's all it is. Whereas Bitcoin, at least if it's not on exchange and it's in your in self-custody, that's money. Like that's there's no counterparty risk. So there's risk that you lose the, your keys. There's risk that someone steals it. There's risk that for some reason, nobody wants Bitcoin or something, which seems less and less likely by the day, but there's no counterparty risk. You're not, it's not an IOU from somebody that, you know, that needs to make good. And remember, just like the hurricane thing, you know, if the banks go down, they all go down. And if they all go down, the FDIC thing's not going to work unless they print so much money. If they print so much money, you're going to have inflation. And so they, and yeah, that's the other thing about cash is you're getting diluted at the same time. Not only is it an IOU, but it's an IOU that's getting depleted relative to the total supply all the time. So that is one thing that I sort of grasped today that I was thinking about, but it made me, it made me think deeper. It actually came up because Coinbase gone down the stock and people saw that there was this terms of service provision where um, they said in the event of bankruptcy, you know, your coins that are on Coinbase are going to go to in the bankruptcy and you're just going to be a creditor and get in line. You know, when, there's a, when a company goes bankrupt, they basically pool all the assets in bankruptcy court and the trustee will then apportion them to creditors, but in a certain order. So like if you're, you know, a secured bondholder, secured debt creditor, you'll be like pretty high up in the line. But if you're just a shareholder, you're going to be low in the line. You're probably getting nothing. And so, you know, you got your Bitcoin and it, it needed to, you know, gets put in the pool. There may not be anything left for you by the time your turn comes in line. And it may be just think like, better have your private keys. And who has the private keys for your dollars? It's not you. You don't have the private keys for your dollars in the event of something like that. You know, you're just, you're going to get in line. And maybe they say, listen, we had to give everyone a 50% haircut, a bail in. They did it in, I think, Cyprus. They did it in Greece. If you have over X in your bank account, they're going to seize 50% of it and, you know, put it toward the treasury. Now, the US, I don't think would do that probably because they can print. But if you're a country in the EU, they might have to do it because it's only ECB can print. And if you're out of money, you might have to take money from your, your people. And, that, and that's kind of the thing is taking money from the people where you can't print. Printing basically dilutes everybody and it reapportions money to the people closest to the money printer. It's called the Cantillion effect. I think I've talked about it before. But if you can't print, then you just got to take money from the from their accounts. And if you think about what the wealth of a country is, you know, it's it's the productive capacity of that country, the value of the goods and services. And it's very hard to to measure because, you know, say my country has a ton of oil and then tomorrow someone invents nuclear fission and we don't really need oil for energy anymore. Well, you know, it's gonna but the, the the productive capacity of my country is going to go down a lot. The resources and my you know trade, uh, the things I have to offer and goods and services are going to go way down. But just knowing how nebulous that is, you know, just sort of the productive capacity of a people is their wealth and printing more money doesn't increase the productive capacity. In fact, it's going to make it worse because it's going to skew incentives. It's certainly not going to make it better. They're just printing more paper. I kind of think of it like a basketball player goes to a team and he scores 40 a night, but the team still scores the same hundred a night. He's just portioning it more toward him. It's kind of what happens when they print money. It just moves the, moves the money to the, to the people closest to the printer, it doesn't increase the, the amount of wealth in the country. Whereas you could have a different kind of player that scores, you know, 20 a night and hands out 10, 10 assists and the team scores 110. And now 
he replaces the guy who's scoring 30. Well, now you're actually adding wealth, growing the pie, and he's taking a smaller uh, chunk of it. It would be like somebody who invents uh, the nuclear fission and makes that country incredibly wealthy or you know, makes uh, the, the standard of living much higher. So these are nebulous concepts, and I'm not really sure I've thought them through entirely. But the idea is just that you can't, you can't increase by printing. You can redistribute by printing and dilute people. And then if you can't print, they just go and bail in and take your money uh, straight from the bank. So it's pretty cool that Bitcoin is a technology wherein you have the money and there's no way to dilute you or take from you. Well, yeah, they can go to your house and beat you to death or kidnap you, but they have to do that individually. And there's millions of people who have Bitcoin. So they, the chances they come to your house specifically, they can't do it remotely at the touch of a button. I think that's the difference. The Canadian truckers, they could make a list. They could go to their banks. They could just delete, just freeze their funds. You know, they could go in, in, into a bank with a bail-in and just do it electronically from there, you know, from a keyboard. This is not the case with Bitcoin. You're going to have to actually send people to your house. And even if they do, they don't know your private key and they don't know how much you're telling them when they're beating you up. You might give them one, not all of them. So this becomes a much more challenging thing. And it's really protection against this stuff when, when things go south. And it looks like things, you know, very well might go south. All right. One other thing, there was the, uh, the Luna fail, uh, TerraCoin or whatever it is, UST, TerraCoin failed. And, and Luna, I don't really understand stable coins entirely. I think what they are is they're a cryptocurrency. The difference between having a, a cryptocurrency is that you can have a Bitcoin account, so to speak. It's not an account, but a wallet, an address where you have the keys. So the, the money resides in your account, so to speak. Whereas dollars cannot be an electronic account unless it's a bank. I think PayPal's a bank, Cash App's a bank, Square has a bank. You need like a banking license in order to, I think, I'm pretty sure about this, have dollars. So these crypto exchanges are not banks. So you can't just keep like a million dollars or whatever in cash. And also, usually for Bitcoin, your exchange that you're using is linked to your bank account. And so if you want to put in 500 bucks, it pulls that out of your bank. And now you've got the 500 to buy Bitcoin with, but the money might not be available all the time. And there may be a limit, almost certainly a limit. And I don't know how quickly it gets in there. But if you put a million dollars in a stable coin like, um, like Terra, and now you've got a million dollars in UST, they called it and it's pegged to the dollar. Now you can buy and sell Bitcoin or shit coins or whatever you want much more efficiently. I think that's the point of them. And I think Terra was offering 20% interest when you bought it. So it was dollar for dollar. You could sell it, you know, dollar for dollar. So if you had a thousand of them, you could sell it and get a thousand dollars and cash out. But they're giving you this ridiculous interest and it was algorithmically linked to the dollar. And I think it was actually some sharp uh, Wall Street people that broke it. They figured out the algorithm and just like George Soros broke the Bank of England with this trade because he realized they were pegging their currency and they would be forced to do something and he could keep pushing it. I think that's what they did. I'm, again, I should probably go deeper into it and, and learn the details, but they, I, was, I read that they netted like a billion dollars dragging down this, whatever it was, $40 billion company. I, I never messed with any stable coins, but a lot of people got wiped out from it. And I think there were some suicides. I mean, it was serious shit. I'll just say one thing. I'm on Twitter a bunch and I would basically consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist. And a lot of the Bitcoin ma maximalists are known as assholes. They're really harsh. They'd be like, get your shit coin out of here. You're a fucking shit coin scammer. They're very in people's faces and people don't like that. And they're like fucking maxis, they're assholes. And the maxis see themselves, some of them as sort of the 
immune system of Bitcoin. They're like the macrophages and the T cells that come and kill, you know, the viruses that are dangerous to the ecosystem. And they're basically just ferociously warning people of scams and they're, they're nasty about it sometimes. But in the end, no one's going to kill themselves because a Bitcoin maxi said, fuck off, you're a scammer. But if these friendly scammers who say, W-A-G-M-I, we all going to make it, they're NFTs or whatever the shit they're shilling, and those go to zero, it, it could wreck somebody's life. You know, they can get scammed and it's much, much worse than somebody being mean to you. So just as a general rule, probably not to tell people who listen to this podcast, nice is fucking bullshit. Kind matters, like real kindness, but it's not on the surface. It's not virtue signaled. You're not going to see it uh, easily like that. Nice is bullshit. Don't fall for nice. The dangerous people are the ones who are nice. The ones who tell you how nice they are, who seem so nice, present themselves as virtuous and nice people. Those are the dangerous people. Those people are going to fuck you. And those are the people you're going to put way too much trust in. A harsh truth teller is way more valuable to you and way less dangerous to you, more importantly. So that's that. A couple of things I would uh, recommend the Dergigi, D-E-R-G-I-G-I on Preston Pish's podcast. I thought that was very good. He's a German guy. He's written a lot of really cool things like Bitcoin is time. He's very articulate. I thought it was a, a great interview. I'm told the safety interview by Lex Fridman was really good. I have, I've heard a teeny bit of it. But I haven't heard the whole thing, but the uh, Dirgigi one I listened to and I thought it was very good. The other big thing in the space is there were, I think, 44 delegates from different countries coming to El Salvador to meet with the El Salvadorian president, Naib Bukele. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce his name. And he's trying to orange pill them. And if, it, if a few more dominoes drop, look out. You may have this game theory race where people are trying to get as many coins as they can before it's too expensive. So um, that was also a positive development. Um, so really all I got today, I did want to uh, give a shout out to Andrew Matney. He generously contributed, but he told me that he would only accept a shout out if I said that he was a, 2021 baseball season of Dalton Del Don fanatic. So he he got mass formation psychosis, not as bad as the uh, the people who want to hold you down and force a needle in you, but he got some mass formation psychosis where he felt that I wasn't giving Dalton enough credit for his very good 2021 season. And he was saying this in July, which had I even given him credit, then it would have been a jinx because he was doing really well in July. He ended up finishing very strong and had a great season. And Andrew still felt I didn't give him enough due, even though I gave him a lot of credit for it. I think I gave him too much credit for his own good. But anyway, he asked for it. He contributed. He asked for that uh, specific description. So I gave it to him. So that's that. So if you if you do contribute uh, and you want to, uh, to be mentioned, I'm happy to mention you. I got to do a better job with Stripe. It's not ideal the way it's set up. It's not the easiest. But then part of me is like, maybe I should just fuck it and not even do them because then I can just leave for six months. So I'll just say this. If you do contribute, it's much appreciated, but I'm not promising you anything in return. I may disappear. I really, really seriously, and I probably won't, but I seriously reserve the right to disappear. And I think if I did disappear and anyone wanted their money back, I would give it back. You know, at least somebody who's contributed in the last month, but I may seriously disappear. The, the whole point of working and selling the company is to be able to disappear and not just keep yourself uh, endlessly um, feeling like you have to do something. So far, I want to do this stuff. I've enjoyed the writing. I enjoy these podcasts. 
I appreciate the feedback, which has been excellent. I appreciate uh, the comment on iTunes that I got. I like those. I think I want to grow this again. I reserve the right to disappear to Dave Chappelle or whatever, but it's not any, it's not imminent. It's not in my imminent plans. All right. I think that's it till next time.